0: Once came another man. style of tall. Go
1: ahead.
0: I'll be honest. I, I played
1: a very high standard. A young, a superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. When you say best. That's hard to define.
0: Competition was extremely.
1: True. Welcome to the chess underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, I and wish theoretical top top in the world were here. Felt down in my, my, my style. my style and skills. I only so. From a distance, zero day. Oh, nice. Welcome back to the June Chess Underground. I am here with very timely, newly minted U.S. Chess Tournament Director of the Year and National Tournament Director, Glenn Panner, who I will let introduce himself. Thanks, Pete. I'm really excited to be on uh, on your podcast this month. Uh, a little bit about
0: me. I'm, as you mentioned, a tournament director, an organizer. I've done a little bit of everything in terms of chess. Uh, a player, a chess dad, a coach. Um, so it's uh, it's been a big part of my life for a very long time, and uh, one of my favorite parts, actually, Uh, in addition to chess, outside of chess. um, As I mentioned, uh, I have a son, and I'm married, and uh, I I enjoy all types of sports, as well as uh, being a foodie and a traveler, and that's me.
1: (laughs) You know, your, your comment about being a foodie, Glenn, you and I have known each other a very long time reminds me of our mutual quest to constantly try to find the best Thai restaurant wherever we go.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, a quest that, uh, you know, it's a labor of love, that's for sure. And uh, I, uh, I'm constantly looking.
1: I never mind failing either. You know, if it's only like the second or third best that I've been to, uh, I'll settle for that. It's a win. Exactly. Yeah, it's a win-win. If you, if you succeed, great. If, if not, that's still okay. You're still having great food. So, Glenn, um, as I mentioned, you and I have known each other quite a while. Our first meeting, I want to start there, dates back to early 2000s, 2004, 2005, because it happens to coincide perfectly with the theme of this year's podcast, which is tournament life. And we met, of course, at a chess tournament. And something rather humorous happened at this particular chess tournament It was the Billy Coleus Memorial in Chicago. Um, could you walk me through sort of the genesis of that and, and this particular incident as well? Oh, absolutely.
0: Uh, the Coleus Memorial was named after um, you know a late friend of mine, uh, Billy Coleus, who is a tremendous young player in the Chicago area. And we were looking for... A way to, uh, and this was before all of the norm tournaments started popping up, right? Uh, to provide opportunities for players to, for masters especially and experts, to get a chance to play each other and improve. And um, this was put together by uh, by myself as well as uh, a couple of our other mutual friends, Tim Mackenty and Len Weber. And uh, that's uh, that's where we met. It was uh, it was it was uh, just. An absolute labor of love and and uh, being able to analyze with the different players in the tournament was so much fun.
1: Yeah, you're right. That w- that was pre I, I remember at that time, that was pre pretty much pre Fide in the US. You know, the, the large, major, major tournaments were Fide rated, but the coleus was sort of, you know, at least in the Midwest, one of the first of its kinds in, in some regards, in that it was Fide rated, it was an invitational, and not a lot of that activity was happening. Back at that time.
0: Right. It was, it was even slightly before when Savannah and myself started putting together norm events.
1: You know, one of the reasons I want to start there is because for me, this sort of typifies, um, you know, the, the phrase tournament life is, is one of the incidents that occurred with a particular FIDE master who was, who played, I believe, in at least the first two renditions of the Coleus Invitational. And, and, and I think more than that, right? I, th- I think he played in all of them.
0: Uh, You're, of course, speaking of uh, feeding master Albert Chow, who's one of uh, uh, Chicago's uh, very own. And uh, Albert Albert is a purist, and you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that loves the game more than Albert does. And like so many other chess players, you know, Albert has some eccentricities.
1: <laughs> you know, I think, I think purist is like the, um, the understatement. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you can go farther. How can you go deeper? Whatever is way deeper than purist in terms of Albert's approach to the game, uh, I think would be right, but I don't, I don't know that we even have a word invented for that. I, I would agree. I can't come up with one at least. <laughs> <laughs> he's a, he's an Albert Chow. That's what he is. He's uh, he's an Albert Chow in terms of his approach to the game. And, uh, one of Albert's
0: qualities in terms of playing is he really enjoys taking his time and, and you know investigating for the truth of, of positions, and he's known for uh, uh, for losing on time quite often. So for uh, for this tournament, when I initially told him that we were thinking of a time control of 40 moves in two hours, sudden death one, which was kind of the default time control for a serious tournament back then. He, um, he pitched an idea that made some sense at the time, which was, why don't we just do game three hours instead of that? Let's get rid of this artificial crisis point at two hours. And if, and if the goal is to create the absolute best chess that we can, if I want to take an hour and a half on move 25, why shouldn't I use my time? It's my time to use.
1: And I thought it was a persuasive argument. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense.
0: In theory. <laughs> In theory. <laughs> the <laughs> practical part of it. Didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, Albert um, uh, still lost on time one of the games anyway, in, even in game three. And uh, in another game, he uh, he actually took a nap at the board intentionally. <laughs> I I asked him about it afterwards, and uh, I said, "weren't you weren't you afraid of flagging?" "No, no, I'm a light sleeper." And I said, "Well." <laughs> you know why would you do it and he said well it's kind of like when you have a problem and you can't see the solution they say it's good to walk away from it he kind of <laughs> literally <laughs> <laughs> yeah he felt as though if uh, if he took a little nap and woke up he'd look at the position with fresh
1: eyes so wait this is like this is like novel chess theory approach he, he literally is 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 creating his own move technique with a nap at the board he did And uh, in fairness to him, it actually worked. He did
0: come back and win the game.
1: (laughs) I'd like a stat on like total wins losses by twenty two hundred plus players who nap during the game. I wonder. I wonder what that is. Maybe there's like something really, really, uh, like unique in this in this approach. I don't know. New training methods, right? So after flagging in one game, I thought he actually flagged in two. But was it was it only one? Maybe it was a flag and a nap, and that's why in my mind he flagged twice. He might have he might have flagged twice. Uh, I I
0: do remember that uh, that our good friend Len, um, you know these, these tournaments took place at my office, which uh, we uh, uh, we sold um, you know industrial equipment and uh, uh, we were, were very much into the plastics industry at the time. And so Len uh, fabricated uh, a chess clock just for Albert which we uh, called the Chownoth after Kronos. <laughs> and the chess clock was actually a dual-sided sundial. <laughs> and it was remarkable watching Albert pick up the, uh, the, the clock and, and, and look at it, trying to figure out how it was used. And, and Len even explained to him, okay, well, you know, to have time delay after you move, you, you just have to tilt, tilt it about one degree um, you know, when you put it back down and that's your time delay.
1: I actually will never forget the look on Albert's face when he picked up the clock and inspected it. It was like a mix of um, incredulity, you know, like dawning on him that, you know, getting the joke if you will, almost. But at the same time, it was also a look of, hey, this isn't that bad of an idea. I think <laughs> I think I could play chess with this. <laughs> might not even flag i think this might work out okay
0: and he, he even said it so there were like little pins in there with with flags on them so if the shadow cast over where the pin was that uh that the person would uh
1: uh you know would lose on time it was it was great so i guess i guess it sort of depends on where you are in the room as to whether or not you're going to flag right like maybe if, if you're about to flag you can like tilt the clock slightly and get more time
0: <laughs> yeah I, I i suppose uh it definitely wouldn't
1: uh, wouldn't be uh Proofed from, uh, from cheating, that's for sure. So, you know, Glenn, I, I know you as an experienced director, you have plenty of stories to tell, and I'm, I'm sure you've been in lots of unique situations. But just one month ago on the show, we had Merritt Thorpe, a fellow a fellow Chicagoan who I think I believe you know pretty well.
0: Yeah, I co-organized with Merritt. She's a really good friend and uh,
1: just a tremendous tournament director as well. And Merritt told I guess what I'm going to say I guess what I'm going to describe as a partial story (laughs) she told a partial story and when I pressed her for details she sort of deferred and said I'm going to let Glenn tell tell that part oh and what I'm referring to of course is the writing of the bull (laughs) um okay I can I can uh, I can tell (laughs) I can tell that story uh, so where where our listeners are at? Is they are aware there was a bet, and they're aware that you yourself, Mister um, Tournament Director of the Year, U.S. Chess Tournament Director of the Year, hopped on a bull, and that's pretty much it. That's all we know.
0: Well, I think I think most of the story happens before I actually get on the bull because the bull ride itself was, you know, only a few seconds. <laughs>
1: uh isn't isn't that true about all, all bull rides most of the story happens before i get on the bull I it's like a life so. lesson right
0: that's uh, <laughs> that's
1: very true uh this did we just come up with a new like like phrase or saying or idiom it all happens before. Mo- most of the story it all happens before you get on the bull <laughs> <laughs> all right sorry
0: so uh you know what what uh how it came about was it was my very first nationals that I got to be uh scholastic national. So I got to be the overall chief for, and I was excited about it. And you, during that process, you're, you're managing a tournament directing staff of uh, 20 or 30 people or even more. And I wanted to make sure that everyone um, had a good time, that the tournament went well, because if it doesn't go well, a lot of, uh, a lot of the blame, um, deservedly so goes on the chief tournament director and so i was looking for ways to motivate people and i i came up with the idea you know what i bet a lot of these people would love to actually see me get launched from a mechanical bull and i told the staff in uh, in in our first meeting that i said if we pull this off if it is a quality event and Boyd approves of it then i will go and i will ride a mechanical bull <laughs> and uh
1: <laughs> at, at um, the Nashville palace. Is that, is that the right name of the place? I think if I remember correctly,
0: that's where, uh, that was the, uh, uh, the joint right across the street from, uh, from the Opry land where we had spied a bull.
1: Right. Okay. Uh,
0: and, and that's where we, we intended to go for it. Okay. Uh, it was, um, you've never seen tournament directors or people in general so motivated. Uh, <laughs> I, guess, I guess seeing me get launched is, might have even been something that many of them uh, have dreamed of. And uh, so uh, after the tournament director's dinner uh, that that evening, uh, we walked over to Nashville Palace, and as it happened, the bull was actually out of commission.
1: No, no. Oh, so no. So
0: I, I was willing to pay pay up for that, and um, you know one of our other tournament directors, um, Donna Wallach, uh, was hell bent on seeing me get launched, <laughs> and she started calling every bar in Nashville to try and find one, you know, with a uh, uh, with a mechanical bull. Uh, unfortunately, it was a Sunday night, and we couldn't get on one. But the next year, when there was another nationals there, uh, you know, I uh, I lived up to my bet, and uh, I actually did climb on the bull. I wish I could say it was a success story, but. Uh, <laughs> It's in short legs. I couldn't hold on very well. I got uh, <laughs> like, launched
1: pretty pretty well. Another idiom, short legs, I can't hold on very well. <laughs> I, I mean, did you come? I think I did, a, believe it or not, I did a little research on this, okay, because I, I'm really invested in this story now, <laughs> and... <laughs> I believe that. It's your screensaver. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I wish. I, oh, if I had photographic uh, evidence or documentation of this, it would absolutely be my screensaver. In fact, I'm going to track down some of these TDs and see if we can't get it put up with the podcast. I did a little research, and I believe it's considered like rodeo standard or like you win if you last eight seconds. Yeah. That didn't happen. <laughs> so did you come close to that? <laughs> No, no. How, uh, how close did you? How close did you? Did you make it, if at all?
0: Maybe I lasted five seconds. Although it seemed like a lot longer when you were on there. And uh, you know, if you've never been on one, uh, the uh, the floor by it isn't isn't just padded. It's like a bouncy house. Okay. So it doesn't hurt at all when you <laughs> when you land. Uh, so that wasn't a bad thing. Now the fun the fun part of it uh, also was one of the things in kind of TD lore is uh, the floor TDs at Scholastic Nationals wear a red vest. Right. And that and, and that red vest has been often um, uh, compared to like being a, a Starfleet officer that's wearing a, a red uniform that you kind of go down to the surface and you might not come back <laughs> up. Um,
1: right. Same level of hazard. The away team, right? Is that what they're called? So yeah. we actually, exactly.
0: Yes. Uh, uh, so we actually did uh, bring a red vest with us and one of the tournament directors uh, actually wore the red
1: vest as they, as they wore the bull. Wow, that is, that is great. You know, I think this gets at something a little deeper. Players and chess parents and participants in a tournament, they often look to the TD as like the figure of reason or the authority figure or the voice of reason or what have you. You know, it's a very staid image, uh, I think, for most players. You know, this is the person I go to who understands the rules, who I can ask questions from. But, you know, people who have been around the game a while, I think, understand that there's sort of a secret life of the tournament director, <laughs> if you will, that leads them to places like the National Palace and the back of a bull and, uh, you know, wearing the, <laughs> the red TD vest whilst participating in such activities. <laughs> Um, I'm sure, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. And that's actually one of the reasons, one of the most
0: enjoyable things about directing tournaments is the camaraderie, the friendships you make, uh, the stories that you get to tell afterwards. And it's actually a way a lot of tournament directors get to learn is from the stories from other tournament directors, how, how they handled crazy situations. Um, you know, uh, my friends, Tim just and, and Wayne Clark wrote, uh, Wrote a book, "My Opponent Eating a Donut," covering a lot of tournament uh, director stories like that, and uh, you know it's those type of stories that get swapped back and forth that really build a nice staff.
1: I think uh, t- Tim just literally wrote wrote the rule book himself, and I'm sure he's got a ton. So, so without divulging too much, tell us your best secret life of TD story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is a family show.
1: <laughs> it's a family show we can change the names to protect the innocent if necessary you know
0: from from scholastic nationals you find so many so many fun stories i started uh, um, especially working with the the really young players the kindergarten and first grade players and, and those you would always get a good story at every tournament because when they raise their hand You have no idea what's coming up. No idea. It could be about chess. The range of
1: outcomes is is very, very wide.
0: (laughs) You know, it could be about chess. It could be asking you to go to the bathroom, hopefully before they've went, uh, already gone. Uh, It could be about their favorite stuffed animal or video game or or anything. And, uh, you know, so a lot of the times you know, you would get such great stories coming from that. I know that uh, I looked forward to going to the board and, and hearing what they had to say. Um, and it would, it would impact how you would direct after a while as well. Uh, the game in some cases would, would almost be secondary. And there was, there was a case where uh, directing in the K1 section, I had uh, one young student, uh, you know, raise his hand and I came over. And he asked, you know, he looked up at me, and I said, yeah, you have a question? And he said, uh, yes. Would you like to see me dance? <laughs> and I, I paused there for a second. Then I thought, you know what? It's probably easier to say yes in this case. Let the kid <laughs> dance for five seconds and have him sit, to, uh, sit back down and, and you, know, ease, you know, rather than have him move on to the next thing and ca- cause chaos in the room. So I, I of course, said yes. of course of course and there's something i hadn't considered which is when one six-year-old gets up and starts dancing you can't just have a party with one person right the vast majority of the kids started dancing wow
1: wow (laughs) so at that moment so you initiated a dance party in the k-1 nationals i initiated, and and the best part
0: was the uh, chief tournament director of that was Carol Jurecki, uh, who's a very experienced, um, one of the one of the best tournament directors ever. Uh, and she was known for at times perhaps being rather stern. And uh, she walks into the room at the precise moment that about <laughs> 75 kids are standing up and dancing. It gives, it gives me a look like I don't even want to know and just
1: about faces right back out of the room. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Now, how, how early in your Nationals experience was this? Was this you know, one of your first times uh, at such an event, or had you been there a few times? And, and I, I where was, were you at?
0: I was probably experienced enough to know better.
1: Um, <laughs> but,
0: uh, you know, as, as Tim Just likes to say also, that uh, uh, National Tournament Directors don't make any less mistakes than, than the average club or local director. We just know how to fix them. Uh, I'm not sure how to fix a dance party in the middle of the tournament, but we got under control and uh, didn't have any more uh, dance-related uh, breakouts during the uh, for the rest of the event. So I guess that's a success.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you can if you can limit your uh, your your dance parties per event to fewer than two, I think you're doing well.
0: <laughs> See, you know, in those K1 sections, the doors are are you know closed to spectators.
1: So right, uh,
0: you know, parents always wonder what goes in uh, go, goes on during those uh, those events. Well. There's there's a secret glimpse.
1: Yeah, now they know. Look at this, the chess underground getting the scoop on what goes on behind the door in a (laughs) Scholastic Nationals K-1 section. You know, I think parents have this image when they're waiting in the room because they they can hear how quiet it is. Mm -hmm. And as the parent of children who have been that age, I know how loud they are, you know? So if you hear your child being that quiet for that extended period, you just think, my goodness, you know, this is so serious, I can't, I'm shocked. And they're waiting in the other room, and everything's silent. And there's this air of, you know, well, seriousness, for lack of a better word. And and now to hear about the dance party going on inside, I think, um, well, honestly, I think is great.
0: Well, it's an interesting dichotomy, because, you know, as, as parents, as, as we both are, if your child has been silent for a little bit too long, um, it's it's definitely time to check on them and see what exactly they're doing. So, you know, yes, uh, parents are often amazed at uh, at their child sitting at a board
1: for half an hour. Yeah, right, because they're probably getting in trouble usually. <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of you know, they're doing something they shouldn't be. Exactly. You know, you had you had said something before the show that I'm really intrigued to hear a little more about, and, and this is probably a good time to ask you about it. You mentioned becoming a parent improved you as a tournament director. Oh, absolutely. Could you elaborate on that? What do you, how what ways and, and and just elaborate a bit? Um a lot of it is empathy.
0: Um if if you don't have and and that's not to say that there aren't a ton of really good uh tournament directors who uh you know who don't have kids, but um quite often if you don't have a child uh and you're um uh and you're directing You wind up, you have an opinion, and when that parent opens, you know, opens the uh, tournament uh, door to peek in for the fourth time during that round, you tend to be exasperated with them. Like, come on, your kid's in here, you know, let it go. There's only one way in and one way out. You didn't miss your kid walking out uh, the door,
1: you know. We're having dance parties. It's
0: fine. (laughs) We're having dance parties. Why are you interrupting our (laughs) dance parties? Uh, but what I found was when my own son started to play that, uh, the nervous energy that you have as a parent during those games is far more than, uh, than your kid has when they're playing. It's, it's much more nerve wracking for a parent. So I think part of it was, um, understanding what the parent was actually going through at that time and, uh, you know, and, and being able to being a little bit more uh, sympathetic to it.
1: And that makes sense, you know.
0: I think that the more experience I had with with my own son, um, it was easier to relate uh, to kids that age because if if you don't have kids, um, you know, dealing, when was the last time that you dealt with a a six or a seven-year-old unless you have, you know, nieces or nephews or or teach in school? So um, I, I think it really improved the way I interacted both with the kids and parents and coaches as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I think something you said there really resonates with me. I've I've played in tournaments. I think my MSA record has you know hundreds and hundreds of tournaments, but I've never been more nervous than when I sent my daughter in to her first round in a tournament. You know, Um, and she, you know, she just wanted to have fun and go move the piece around. I think she was five, didn't really care if she won or lost. She just thought other kids are doing this, I want to do it too. You know, Um, but it's just a different, it's just a completely different experience than walking in to play yourself.
0: Oh, absolutely. When my son played in his first tournament you know it's probably an under 400 section or something like that and half the moves uh, that uh, his opponents were making were illegal and my <laughs> son was raising his hand yeah you know and just like you know I got the first-hand experience of that parent who's who, who wants to shout at the top of their lungs and that's an illegal you know your kid is cheating against my kid you know you 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 see that uh, that absolute angst that's there. And uh, I got to experience a little bit, and um, you know, I uh, I waited till the game ended and talked to my son. I said, "Did you notice that that move was illegal?" Uh huh. Well, <laughs> why didn't you say something? <laughs> yeah, we were just having fun. I'm like, okay, good answer, and uh, and resign myself not to watch any more of his games for that tournament. <laughs> 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 exactly.
1: I think that's the best thing you can do is just let them do what they're going to do. Let the course of action be whatever it is going to be. And as long as they're having fun, great, you know? Yeah.
0: And, and I try as a tournament director, I try and uh, make sure that uh, everyone's having a good time. And uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to, uh, to crack a joke or, or just to have fun, uh, fun with the players. I think it's important to, uh, to relate with them and, and to, uh, to be able to, Uh, relieve some of the anxiety and tension that goes on
1: yeah and there there certainly can be you know a lot of that in events from from all perspectives you know directors players that's a big part of of tournament life is the anxiety of competition and i think you know as a coach one of the things you have to address is you have to address with players who struggle with that how to manage that um so it's interesting to hear absolutely that from a td you also think of
0: that as I said, being in those younger sections, I've seen situations where, uh, um, you know, after a game, um, you know, a, a parent was walking with their child and and uh, was was just very upset. You know, the parent was upset because the child lost the game, and you know was I berating? It's way too strong a word, but uh, was was rather harsh with with the child, and, and said, "What were you thinking during the game?" And the kid just looked up and said. Cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and the parents stopped dinner. Cookies. Yeah, I love the peanut butter cookies that grandma makes. <laughs> and, that was, <laughs> and that was it. The parent had nothing. No response to that. So, uh, you know, we see situations like that. Uh, you know, there's uh, a host of other stories uh, along those lines where, um, you know, the common theme is quite often the parent has a lot more um uh, a lot more invested in the game than uh, than the kid uh, does, who's just
1: there to uh, to enjoy themselves. Yeah, I think I think that's true. So, Glenn, apart from scholastic work, you've also done a lot of work directing, you know, adult tournaments, larger scale tournaments. I think, in particular, of the USAT set um, United States Amateur Team that you organize in uh, Chicago. You do, you do the North event. I know. Also, I have played in a few national opens that you have directed um actually one of my favorite tournaments over the year is the national open and i remember one time you even uh, you know speaking of speaking of kids actually you looped me into uh partnering with a five-year-old for the national open bug house championship didn't have a partner little five-year-old kid from idaho and i was hanging around near the tournament site and you just said hey pete sit down and play with this guy and uh so we were a bug house team
0: Al Losoff and and company do such a great staff. If, uh, if you're going to play in one large um, uh, tournament a year, I mean that's that's a really good choice. Um, you know, it's it's
1: yeah. I've always enjoyed myself out there. Yeah,
0: it's great event, and you know, Freddie Grunberg, who really brought the tournament to to uh, to life, his uh, his motto was always put the fun back in chess, and uh, Al did a wonderful job, kind of uh, keeping that going.
1: You know, speaking of which, I'll actually. Remember a time you and I went out in search of one of our one of our famous Thai restaurant quests? You remember this one? <laughs> we did. We we're we in. Did. It was so <laughs> we went
0: Looking for all sorts of things, including uh, I think uh,
1: we uh, we were actually looking for a uh, Korean karaoke bar too. Yes, which I don't know if I ever told you, but we later found. Um, <laughs> so so for those listeners who aren't aware, the National Open every year is in Las Vegas which is not exactly the most inviting uh, or safe city to go around looking for a Thai restaurant at about 11.30 p.m. on a Sunday. Um, but we found it, and um, we I thought it was really good, actually. I, I can't remember the name of it. I just remember getting there was very frightening. Lotus of Siam. Yes, and it was in this sort of enclosed strip mall That was uh, one of the weirdest designs I've ever seen. You know, normally with a strip mall, it's sort of like in a strip, literally, right? You know, just a line. This was a square where all of the shops were on the inside. So it sort of felt like you were passing through like a moat and drawbridge, you know, old castle to get in, (laughs) even though, of course, there was no moat or drawbridge. But the point is, it was all enclosed and almost like a a security, you know, a method of security to hide this Lotus of Siam back there.
0: It was... uh Definitely a seedy area that uh, m- while it might not have had a moat, there were other hazards
1: to cross. Right. Exactly. Yes. That, that's the best way to describe it. Um, but anyways, speaking of the National Open, I understand that this is an event where you have a couple of good stories, including one about uh, a particular uh, grandmaster who um, we've heard about a little bit more on the show in December from Brian Wall. I'm referring, of course, to Grandmaster Roman Jinji <laughs> Um Yeah, thankfully, um,
0: you know, in, in the story, uh, uh, the person um, uh, who is one of the people that was involved uh, is no longer with us. I shouldn't say thankfully, is a re- really nice guy. Uh, but um, so I won't be uh, embarrassing uh, uh, him. And quite often when you're at these tournaments in Las Vegas, you have to walk through the casino to get anywhere. To whether it's to go to your room, or the restaurant, it's designed so you have to walk past machines and tables. And in this case, I happened to uh, to be walking through the casino where I noticed, uh, you know, Jinji uh, 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 standing there alongside uh, Jerry Hankin, the former uh, USCF uh, executive board member and, and national master, and. Jerry was uh fervently advocating for for Gingy to get a line of credit from the casino. <laughs> and he was, you know, singing Gingy's praises. He was he was, do you know who this man is? He's he's won the US championship. He's a grandmaster, he served as set as a second in the world championship match. This is a very, very, very important person. And uh, the um the pit boss who he was, uh, you know, uh, explaining this to was not real impressed. He just stood there the entire time, letting Jerry rant with his arms crossed. (laughs) And when Jerry finished his rant, he just looked at him and said, does he have money? (laughs) And uh, Jerry kind of looked back over to Gigi and said, you're on your own. And I've never quite seen, Jerry moved so fast, either without, with or without his scooter. Uh, he was out of there real quick. So you, you can see uh, Grandmasters and other uh, and other people in, uh, in definitely an environment that uh, is different from
1: being at the board. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember in the National Open, I've had opponents arrive at the board with um, an alcoholic beverage of their choice. <laughs> and... You know, sit down 15 minutes into the round and plop down like a, like a, a stack of poker chips and their beverage and start playing their tournament game. Uh,
0: some, of them, uh, some of them run back and forth to the tables in between moves, in fact. Yes, I've seen that happen. <laughs> I, I remember one year, actually, uh, I, I know you're a big uh, basketball fan, um, you know, as, as am I. And the uh, National Open, which was uh, usually in June uh, was taking place during the NBA. Uh, uh, you know, uh, at that point it was the conference finals, I believe that were going on. Yeah. And, uh, it was the, uh, the famous, uh, Reggie Miller, Spike Lee game. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I was standing there, uh, in the, in the sports book, watching the conclusion of that next to Josh Waitskin and, and his father.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: um, who we're both big Knicks fans. Okay. And so, um, the second the game ended, um, there's there's a lot of shouting, as you can imagine, and you probably saw about 25 players just go
1: screaming out of there, running back to the <laughs> boards at the time. You know? Right. I remember the very first year uh, I played in the National Open when I was of legal gambling age. So this would have been 2004, actually, um, and the same the same year as the Coleus. Uh, I... If, if my memory serves me correctly there was that would have been a World Cup year right 2004 8 12 no maybe not maybe it, it must have been a couple years later I remember placing a World Cup bet and that was the only time I left my board during a tournament game was to go and see how my World Cup team I was doing and I, I placed a bet on the Netherlands <laughs> which they did not do particularly well unfortunately but that saved my chess because I I, I was able to stop going and checking their games after they got knocked out. <laughs>
0: That happens a lot, maybe not with the Netherlands, but you right. know, in, in general there. Right. It's, it's part of the fun.
1: I remember also there used to be at these events, there were the WBCA tournaments, which stands for World Blitz Chess Association. Um, so as, as sort of like a part of the festival atmosphere, prior to the main event, there were several side events, one of them, which was a WBCA championship. And I remember two years in a row, actually, I was paired with Emery Tate, And I was about, I would say, 2,000 rated at the time. And then the second time around, a little higher, maybe 2,100s. And I finally had him on the ropes. And I ended up flagging and losing anyway. And I'll never forget the look on Tate's face at the end. He he sort of brushed his brow and said, whew. And then, of course, in classic Tate fashion, instantly demonstrated to me a brilliant tactical combination I had completely missed that was completely winning. Um and then we went and had a had a you could certainly
0: see uh, you know, moves and positions and ideas that nobody else could. I mean, he was one of the one of the best characters in our game. I mean, just uh you
1: know, a very brilliant guy, there's no doubt about that. And remarkably just lightning fast in terms of Mm -hmm. how quickly he could spot the tactics too. Um But as I understand it, you have a pretty fun Tate story at a national open.
0: Well, anyone that's ever directed a tournament where Emery's at, um, you know was at uh, probably has at least a few good uh, tate stories um uh, you know uh, my my tate story and uh, you know you'll have to edit this to, uh, to <laughs> a little bit.
1: this is uh, if you're listening to life this, is unedited mr panner life <laughs> is unedited
0: if you're listening to this uh, and have kids nearby now would be a good time to uh, <laughs> to perhaps um you know listen to it uh, without them uh, at the moment but um uh, Emery, um, when he was at this tournament, he would room with the, uh, the late, uh, GM, uh, Wojo. Uh, and you know, they, uh, they enjoyed each other's company and, uh, sometimes very, very, uh, late into the night, uh, you know, they were known to, uh, to tip more than a couple of, a, a, a few drinks back. And, uh, this was the evening before, uh, before, uh, the final, one of the final rounds of the event Um, and what winds up happening is um, they got back to the room very, very late and, and turned in and uh, for the morning round, Tate was playing. uh, uh, I I don't remember who Tate was playing, but uh, the person who he, who is also contending for the under 2400 prize along with Tate happened to be paired against Wojo. So his rival was
1: paired against his roommate exactly hmm.
0: and you know about uh, half an hour into the game tate had uh, noticed that wojo never showed up for the game so even though you know as players you know it's it's against the rules to do this but <laughs> tate went up to his hotel room to uh to make sure that wojo was okay and and to get to the board right and He, uh, he entered the room and, uh, as Tate described it, he wasn't even sure if Wojo was, was breathing at the time. Uh, he was so still and, uh, at, you know, um, the position he found, uh, Wojo in was, was, uh, interesting. He was, you know, laying on his back. What's that? that? Compromised position, if you will. Compromised. Uh, you know, uh, uh, his, uh, you know, pants were, uh, were down and uh, tape was a little apprehensive to, uh, to approach him, but he was a little bit concerned also that, you know, his friend wasn't, uh, didn't appear to be moving or breathing. Uh, so he tried, uh, he went up to him and tried rousing him and uh, uh, one was, uh, was unable to do so. Um, but he had to get back to his board. He didn't want to lose on time himself. So he was he was torn as to what to do. he needed someone to take action and, and he couldn't very well just stay there right uh, so he did what uh, I'm not sure anyone else would have thought to do, which was uh, stop uh, at the room next door um, find uh, find one of the housekeepers, and promptly send her into the room uh, and <laughs> I believe she was a little startled. I but, wonder, uh, like, yeah, how yeah. would that
1: conversation go? You know, how would you convince them to go into the next room? You know, <laughs> my, my friend is in need of assistance, or could you? I, I, you know, what, what, what do you say to achieve that help? I guess is what I, what, what I would be curious. Anyway, go ahead.
0: he's was creative, and yeah, and, uh, could be very persuasive as well. Right, um, I, I believe he did hear some screams as he. Uh, uh, as, as he uh, went towards the elevator afterwards and uh, I asked him well weren't you concerned what were you going to do and he just looked at me and said I wasn't about to give wojo mouth to mouth I just <laughs> I need to make sure he is okay so he uh, he did get back to his board uh, I don't remember if Wojo uh, you know actually uh, made it down to his board or not but oh, yeah. uh, um, you know there's there's a lot of uh, instances I think there's more uh, more cases of forfeits uh, at uh, the Vegas tournament at City. the
1: national open. Yeah. than any, any other event, I think that's true. Yeah. Well, you know, just curious as a, as a very veteran experienced TD, you know, how would you handle a situation like that? If a, if a player came to you and said, listen, you know, instead of, in, you know, basically an, if you were the housekeeper, instead of going to the housekeeper, <laughs> listen, I'm concerned for my friend, <laughs> He's he's having some issues, but I you know my clock is running and I, I can't let my clock run out. You know what do you do in a case like that? Is that how do you get involved? If so, how?
0: Well, I'm thankful that uh, Emery wasn't quite that creative uh, coming up with that solution that you mentioned. Uh, getting a tournament director to go up there. Um, to me, in a lot of cases, the rules um, are almost secondary when you're um, uh, when you're directing a tournament, and. Um, in, in my case, I think the way I would handle it in that situation was the first, you know, safety is, of, of course, the first concern. So if someone tells you, hey, you know, this player isn't well, um, we need to check on him. I think it's perfectly acceptable to, uh, you know, to check on a player who might be uh, in distress. I mean, I think, that uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily try and wake him, but if I couldn't determine that uh, he is breathing or not, uh, you know, you need to take action in a situation like that.
1: Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting where, you know, where do the rules cross over with common sense and safety? And, and how, do you, how do you take action in those circumstances? You know, I, I'm sure everyone at some point, if, if you're a TD long enough, you're going to be put in a situation not identical to that but you're going to be put in a situation where you have to make a judgment call, you know, um, and it may come down to safety. It may come down to safety of the entire tournament. You know, an example I'm thinking of was playing in the Midwest. We often run into tornadoes Mm -hmm. and I remember there was a tornado warning, a very serious one near a tournament site one time in the middle of the last round. So, you know, pretty much everything is at stake, right? Sure. And in the smaller tournaments in the Midwest, a lot of times there's, you know, a a, a significant portion of the tournament is still in contention in the final round, you know. So every game matters. And, you know, the the weather warnings we were receiving were bad enough. I remember we were playing on the third or fourth floor uh, of of our site, which I believe was a student union. And we could actually even see, you know, from that high up over the flatlands of Iowa, we could see the tornado coming. And the TD just said, look, guys, I'm sorry, we're stopping the games. And all the games were stopped <laughs> and everyone was moved to the basement of, of the union. And if you can think about what that would be like in the middle of a very competitive final round, um, you know, it's difficult to manage. Uh, but but sometimes you have to do what you have to do.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that makes um, uh, a good TD is to know when to, you know, step in and when to push the rule book aside and understand what your, you know, what your job is. And in a case like that, hey, (laughs) um, you know, if, if a tornado hits the playing room, uh even if you're saying games are adjudicated anyway (laughs) they're going to be adjudicated that way uh as well i think uh, it's much better off getting everyone to a basement in a case like that
1: i'm curious have you ever had you know any other situations where you've had to make a a really difficult choice between let's say a, a strict adherence to the rules and you know common sense for lack of a better way to put it
0: i think that happens fairly often and i you know one one thing I would definitely say to, uh, to tournament directors, um, who, who are, uh, attempting to learn is that, um, you know, having a spirit of fairness, having, you know, an understanding of, of what's going around you is even more, uh, important than having, uh, you know, an encyclopedic knowledge of the rule book. Um, you just have to, you know, read this, you know, read the situations, um, uh, around you and and uh, know when it's when it uh, is time to step in.
1: You know, a couple a couple questions I like to ask, particularly very senior level TDs like NTDs. Let's start with this one. Knowing you for a while, I, I think I may know. But what motivated you, or what sort of got you into the TD business in the first place, and and then following up on that, what made you want to keep going and, and move up the ranks?
0: <laughs> um, well, I started off um, very much, <clears throat> you know, playing as as a junior player, right? And um, I, you know, live and grew up in the southwest suburbs of Chicago, which is a little bit of a chess desert. There's um, okay. not that much uh, in terms of uh, uh, tournaments uh, that go on. Um, if you aren't familiar with the Chicago area, there's a lot more players. Uh, in the city and in the northern and western uh, suburbs. In the south suburbs, right. uh, you know, there's very few uh, clubs and, and even less in the way of, of tournaments. Uh, so, uh, quite honestly, I got involved because I wanted tournaments that I could play in. So I was able to start uh, doing that. In fact, I I ran uh, you know a fee day tournament uh, similar to the uh, to the Coleus Memorial. Uh, Billy actually played in that. Uh, when I was uh, 15 years old. Uh, these days, uh, I don't believe uh, a 15-year-old could be an arbiter in those cases.
1: Hmm. So, so basically, it was just a, a lack of activity and, and somebody needed to fill that gap.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a, a big part of it. Uh-huh. Uh, I had friends who were organizers, so it was partially to help them out as well. Right. And I, uh, even when I wasn't studying chess as actively, uh, I could still go to a tournament and see my friends and and uh, you know enjoy watching games. Right. If I was a director and uh, and the kicker was especially when I was in uh, college, you know I could get paid for it. Which right, right. It, so I get to be you know at a chess tournament and get paid. I mean, what a what a great idea that was. <laughs> What's um, not to love? <laughs> exactly, and I didn't have those uh, moments where. Uh, uh, where I'd be cursing at myself for blowing a one game and things like that. It was it was a lot lower stress in many ways.
1: That's uh, that's a fascinating take. You know, I, I do find a lot of TDs that I know in particular, you know, that's sort of what begins the conversation, right? Well, somebody, we needed somebody, right? Um, but I really like your low stress take. I, I think, you know what, Glenn, you've, you've inspired <laughs> me to uh, broadcast. Well, I guess we are broadcasting that message everywhere. Another thing that I like to ask, especially very accomplished and experienced TDs such as yourself, and I, I love the responses I get to this. So I'm, I'm curious where you where you stand on this. Let's say I'm a TD and I want to move up the ranks. What advice would you have for somebody like that? Um, you know, that's something that
0: that uh, I take a lot of pride in, actually. That um a lot of tournament different tournament directors have different skill sets. And you have to kind of find what what type of tournament director uh, you are. We have some TDs that are amazing backroom or computer tournament directors that can, you know, process, you know, a 500 player tournament all by themselves and 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 do it nearly instantly and they like doing it because they uh, might not want to deal with people as much and they get to hide in the back room and do it and still be productive. Still be productive. Uh, you have others that um, uh, that prefer to be floor TDs and talk with players and be interactive. Um, so a lot of the different type of tournament director that, that you can excel at will be based on your personality and the skill set that you have as, as an individual. Um, that doesn't mean that if you're not a computer person you should try and improve that. You certainly should. But it, it means that you might be, if if you're a social person, you might be an outstanding floor uh, floor TD. Right.
1: Um,
0: if you're a good listener, I mean, listening is the single most um, important skill that you can have as a tournament director. You're trying to find, and often, uh, quite often, we have an adversarial game, and you have two tourna- uh, you have two players who might have completely different stories about the same exact thing. So, being able to listen. Uh, having the conflict resolution skills that you're able to um, uh, to uh, defray those those uh, you know explosive situations. That's that's those are really important skills to have. And I would say that the best way to improve that. There's no shortage of experience uh, for experience. Find a tournament director at at a tournament that you're at, whether you're playing or or spectating or coaching. You know, you'll notice that many tournament directors have those different styles find one that suits you and, and, you know, apprentice work with that tournament director, you know, ask them questions, go to events. And, uh, uh, you know, believe me as an organizer, I am always thrilled. I have an open door policy when it comes to tournament directors who want to improve. If they want to come to one of my events and work, I am absolutely thrilled to work with them and, and, uh, give them tips and,
1: and, you know, hopefully, uh, help them improve. You know, that's f- fascinating. One, one of the things you said there about finding your vein, right? Find Finding what suits you and, and working to those strengths. Because in a lot of ways, as a chess player and coach, you know, I think that's a, that's a very relevant thing towards playing the game of chess as well. You know, what what suits you? What type of positions do you do well in? You know, how how do you, how, what sort of approach do you use to the game? And how can we work on that to help improve your, your study habits and your playing habits. So it's fascinating that that also sort of is a mirror image for, for directing.
0: I, I, I think it is. I think that, um, you know, if you're a person that, uh, uh, that uh, maybe, maybe you're a strong player, maybe you're a 2400 that uh, uh, wants to direct, uh, there aren't all that many of those, but, um, and, you know, you don't like kids, for example, or, Get easily frustrated (laughs) directing a scholastic tournament. You might get a little, you know, frustrated about the fifth. Maybe not for you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you you probably don't want to have to explain what en passant is for about the sixth time that round. You you might get flustered by that. Um, But you know, if if you're someone that's uh, that likes kids or is very patient and and likes teaching and and the interaction. you know, doing beginners or, or scholastic tournaments, like dance people. parties, <laughs> and like dance parties especially, uh, that might be an outstanding place for you to be. Um, you know, if you know that twenty four hundred might be able to uh, you know be outstanding when it comes to um, you know uh, higher level tournaments, right? Uh, because they're more engaged, they want to see what the uh, uh, what the other masters or GMs are, are doing, and and uh, um, Understand as a strong player um, that, geez, I should try and stand out of this player's you know line of sight because I might be disturbing them, disturbing uh, them during a deep think or or just little subtle, subtleties that a player might who's not quite as strong might not pick up on.
1: Yeah, that, I think that's great advice. Thank thank you for sharing that and and for being willing um, to come on and give our listeners a, a view into. Uh, some of your experiences and and how you've handled them. And and in particular, uh, what goes on behind the closed doors of a scholastic (laughs) K-1 national championship section. (laughs) Uh, Glenn, this has just been fantastic and I I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, Are there any parting words you'd like to leave for our listeners?
0: Uh, Not really. I just can't wait for us to get back to normal and and have over the board chess again. Uh, I miss it so much. Um, nothing wrong with, uh, with online chess. It's just not quite the same. Yeah. And, um, you know, if there are any, you know, player, people who are interested in, um, in improving as a tournament director, uh, or as an organizer, which is something that, uh, I'd like to think I'm pretty good at as well. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to, uh, to, to give advice or if you want to be a part of one of my events or, or even bring an event to your area. Uh, I I love collaborating with people. I've made so many good friendships that way. Uh, feel free.
1: Great. Uh, I I think a lot of people share your sentiment. You know, I I, I myself am also uh, trumping at the bit to get back to some overboard action, uh, hopefully in a safe manner um, once everything has uh, improved. But um, yeah, you're you're right, Glenn. There's really no substitute for that, and I look forward to the next time you and I get to share one of those experiences i am looking forward to it as well great well thank you again for being here um to all of our listeners we'll continue next month with more of Learning life in the meantime I'm signing pete carriott thanks Glenn. From a distance. thanks pete tactical struggle you say that, that's hard to define. thank you for listening to the chess underground a u.s chess podcast Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday and include Ladies Night with Jim Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lewis. US Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www7 for consulting, production and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Carianos.